0: You have your Bibles with you, open up to John chapter 13. John 13, we're continuing our verse-by-verse verse study through this amazing gospel. That's the gospel of John, and if you're taking notes this morning, you'll see there in your bulletin or as an outline that you can follow along, and the title of the sermon this morning is to love one another. Love one another. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Here's what the apostle John writes. When he had gone out, Jesus said, another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the opportunity that on this day we get to study the love of Christ and the love that you showed to us and the love that you've commanded us to share with one another. And so open our minds this morning, enlighten our hearts this morning, allow us to understand with a deeper understanding so that we can live out these truths in the light of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there was a group of children that was asked one day what it means to love one another. And here are some of the things that those children said. Elaine, age five, said, love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken, all right, I like that, it might be from the south, I'm liking that already, Terry, age four, said, love is what makes you smile when you're tired, Chrissy, age six, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs, that would for sure be love in our family, Noel, age seven, Love is when you tell a guy that you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. (laughs) (laughs) They they learn at a young age, don't they? So Rebecca, age eight, uh, says, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time even when his hands got arthritis, too. That's love. Now, that that girl's got it, doesn't she? She sees real service there. Another Terry, age four, says, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Might have read that one already. Billy, age four, when somebody loves you the way that they say your name is different, you just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Danny, age seven. Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. (laughs) (laughs) Jessica, age eight. You really shouldn't say, I love you, unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. Well, what cute and helpful thoughts from these children About ways to love one another. It is so true that we easily forget that loving one another is saying it regularly and showing it regularly as well. Well, in our passage today, Jesus is talking to his disciples and telling them that they are to love one another. A distinguishing mark of being a follower of Jesus is a deep sincere love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. John says it this way in 1 John 4, 21, in this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. In giving this command, Jesus did something that the world has never seen before. He created a community that is entirely known and identified by one simple thing, love. There are many groups in the world that identify themselves in a number of ways. It could be by your language, or by the color of your skin, or the country that you're from, or the kind of work that you do. It could be by the socioeconomic group that you belong to, by the level of education you've obtained, by shared interests in sh- certain hobbies, by the team you cheer for, or by the type of clothing you wear. The ways people categorize themselves is endless, but the church is unique. For the first time and the only time in history, Jesus created a community whose identifying factor is love. Language does not matter, skin color does not matter, ethnicity does not matter, socioeconomic status does not matter, your hobbies or your sports teams don't matter, unless you cheer for the Dodgers, (laughs) then I will love you, (laughs) I'll love you anyway. But what matters is that we are followers of Christ, and followers of Christ love one another. In this portion of scripture that we are looking at today, John thirteen thirty-one through 35, there are two words that come together in a beautiful way, and it's the word glory and the word love. The word glory is found five times in verses 31 through 32, while the word love is found four times in verses 34 and 35. And so this morning, as we learn how to love one another, I want us to look at the glory of the cross, the glory of discipleship, and the glory of love. First, the glory of the cross. If you're taking notes this morning, your first blank says, the Son of Man is glorified in the cross. Look at the first part of verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. Now, if you remember, John 13 starts off with Jesus washing the disciples' feet, then it takes a difficult turn when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. After Jesus gave Judas the morsel of bread, the Bible says Satan entered into Judas and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do not quickly. Judas left immediately, and it was night. So that's the verse right before where we're digging in. And now Jesus says, when he'd gone out, now is the Son of Man glorified. At this point, it is if now that Judas is gone, Jesus can really get back to some of his most fantastic teaching. At this point, there are no more defectors. There are no more distractors. And so Jesus is able to to use inclusive language. You see, before, Jesus said things like in John 13, verse 10, and you are clean, but not every one of you. And again, in verse 11, not all of you are clean. But now that Judas, the traitor, is out of the room, Jesus can speak more inclusively and exhaustively to the 11 faithful disciples who were left. And Jesus says to them, now is the Son of Man glorified. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus had been saying that his time has not yet come. John 2, verse 4, my hour has not yet come. John 7, verse 30, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one had arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But after the triumphal entry, here during the Passion Week, Jesus now says his hour has come. He said it in John 12, 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And when Jesus says it here in verse 31, now the Son of Man is glorified, he is saying that the the hour is now upon them. It has begun. Out of all the hours of Jesus's life, And out of all the hours since the creation of the world, and yes, even from eternity past, this is now the hour. More impactful than October the 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation. More influential than when the Declaration of Independence was signed on July the 4th, 1776. More earth-shattering than December the 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor more captivating than when the man walked on the moon, or more important than when the iron curtain fell, or when 9-11 happened, was this incomparable time when Jesus would be glorified. When Jesus uses the title, the Son of Man, here in this verse, the Son of Man will be glorified. Notice that that title is one that he uses regularly about himself. It comes from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. So in that context, he's saying, hey, the Messiah is coming, the son of man, and he's going to present himself to the father, referred to as the ancient of days, and he presented before him and to him It was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That prophecy, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man, and referred to himself as the one who would receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that will never end. Jesus, the Son of Man, will have an everlasting dominion. The Son of Man will be served by all peoples, by all nations, and all languages. His kingdom will not pass away, and it will never be destroyed. But before the Son of Man will be glorified in this way, he must first die on the cross and then be resurrected, and then be exalted into heaven at the ascension. And so when you think about Jesus talking about his time has come for him to be glorified, think about these three things, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. That's what he's talking about, in case you're wondering, well, what is he talking about? May the Son of Man be glorified. Sometimes we'd say, well, it's just the cross. Jesus is glorified in the cross. And that would be partly true. But remember, the cross also points to the resurrection and the ascension. And so Jesus was glorified in his death because in his death, he purchased salvation by satisfying God's demands for justice for all who would believe in him. Colossians two thirteen and 14 says that God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Not only was Jesus glorified in his death, but we're saying that he was also glorified in his resurrection. And he proves himself as more powerful than death. The grave could not hold him, the tomb could not keep him, and death had no power over him. And it is precisely because of Christ's resurrection that you too can have power in his name. Ephesians 5, or Ephesians 2 rather, 5 and 6 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Jesus was glorified in the crucifixion, and he was glorified in the resurrection, but he was also glorified in the ascension. The last words that Jesus spoke here on earth as he was about to ascend are found in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, and we had said, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, and so when you think about the cross, think about it comprehensively, the cross pays for your sins, the resurrection gives you new life, the ascension was the transition of the Holy Spirit a promised gift that Christ said that he would give to us so that we could have power over sin and have a bold testimony and witness in the world to those around us. And so we see all of this is encompassed in this phrase that the Son of Man will now be glorified. And not only is the Son of Man glorified, but verse 31 goes on to say that the Father will be glorified as well. God the Father, that's your next blank, is glorified in the cross. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. You may ask, well, how is the Father glorified in the cross, or how is the Father glorified in the Son, if he's talking about the cross here, and it was Jesus who died on the cross, this is true, but it was the Father who sent him. It was Jesus who died on the cross, but it was according to the Father's plan of redemption. And just as Jesus is glorified through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, so is the Father. Philippians 2, nine through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see here clearly that this was done to glorify the Father, And when we think about the attributes of God, think about the glory of the Father. So many times we think about, well, his attributes, his omniscience and his omnipotence and his omnipresence. And that would be true. And I'm saying this morning to you that when you think about those attributes of God, I believe that they are nowhere more clearly revealed than they are at the cross. In fact, I believe that through the cross, God's glorious nature was supremely put on display. Let's talk about how some of these attributes of God are on display on the cross. Christ's death on the cross shows the holiness of God. A holy God who hates sin, a holy God who will not tolerate sin, and a holy God who has a plan to deal with sin. The the death of Christ on the cross shows us the justice of God. God did not sweep our sin under a rug He did not turn a blind eye to it. Instead, God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die on the cross to pay our sin debt. And Jesus, who never sinned, became our substitute and paid our price so that we could be set free. Christ's death on the cross points to God's wrath. Wrath is not a bad temper. Wrath is not unholy anger. The divine wrath is to be regarded as the natural expression of the divine nature of manifesting itself against the willful, high-handed, deliberate, inexcusable sin and iniquity of mankind. God's wrath is always regarded in the scripture as the just, proper, and natural expression of his holiness and righteousness, which must always, under all circumstances and at all costs, be maintained." It is therefore righteous indignation, and it is totally compatible with the holy and the righteous nature of God. Christ's death on the cross shows us the omnipotence of God. God is all-powerful. Not only did he orchestrate every event leading up to the cross, he ordained the cross, and he ordered the resurrection, and the whole plan of redemption was accomplished because of God's power. Christ's death on the cross shows us the faithfulness of God from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God promised a redeemer. God promised Israel a Messiah who would save his people from their sins. God promised a lamb who would take away the sins of the world and he provided that lamb in Christ. Christ's death on the cross shows us the mercy of God. We all deserve death. The wages of our sin is death. We have all fallen. We are all guilty. We all deserve hell. And yet through the cross, God shows us his mercy by not giving us what we deserve. Christ's death on the cross shows the grace of God. Not only did we not get what we deserved, but God gives us something amazing. He gives us his grace. God's grace is Christ's riches. Right? It's God's riches at Christ's expense, and through the resurrection, Christ paid for our sins, and through the resurrection, Christ imputed to us his righteousness, and through the ascension, Christ points us to our future grace and glory that we have with him in heaven. Christ's death on the cross shows us the love of God. You want to see the love of God proclaimed? Look at the cross. The love of God can be seen in creation. The love of God can be seen in creating mankind. The love of God can be seen in common grace given to all. But the love of God is seen most clearly in him giving us his son. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates. He shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what we're saying is, is the glory of the cross is Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. That points to Christ's glory. It also points to the glory of the Father. And then we see your next point there, the glory of the Father and the Son are seen in the resurrection. Notice how verse 32 says, if God is glorified in him, that is, God is glorified in Jesus, then God will also glorify Jesus in himself and glorify him at once that's what that verse is saying it's saying basically it's pointing to the resurrection it's saying look if god and the son are both glorified in the cross and we know there's also coming that resurrection and ascension then god will glorify him in himself and he will glorify him at once verse 32 now looks past the cross and looks to christ's resurrection it looks to his ascension it looks to his exaltation at god's right hand God is glorified in Jesus's sacrifice on the cross, and God will also glorify Christ in himself through Jesus's resurrection and his exaltation. And when it says that he will glorify him at once, he means that at the moment of Jesus's death, the price was paid in full. You get that at the very moment. that that Jesus died on the cross, he is at once glorified. This means that Jesus did not suffer anymore after his death. Jesus said in Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There are some that would say that after Jesus died on the cross, he suffered in hell and was lambasted by Satan for three days and three nights in order to finish out that payment. That's just not true. The Bible never says that he suffered for one moment past his death. Instead, the Bible says, Jesus, again, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. In First Peter 3:18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, if there is any thought of Jesus going into hell, between his death and resurrection it's included in that first Peter 3 passage that says that he went to proclaim to the spirits who were in prison and all that's saying is that basically he goes to preach the gospel or to rather state victoriously that the gospel was accomplished on the cross but there's no suffering going on there and then Jesus immediately says he went into heaven, 1 Peter three twenty two, and is at the right hand of God with his angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus longed to return to his Father's glory as expressed in John seventeen five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So what we're saying is the cross is the symbol of our faith. The cross is the foundation of our freedom. The cross is the focal point of God's love poured out for sinners. But when you think about the cross, don't just think about Jesus's death. The glorification of Jesus on the cross includes death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's why when we see the cross, it's empty, right? It's empty saying, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus came, he died, but he's not there. That means he's risen, but he's not on earth, so he's in heaven. And that all encompasses this idea of now is the hour of the glorification of Christ. I like to think about it this way. Think, when you think about the cross, think about Jesus's perfect life. Think about Jesus's punishing death. Think about Jesus's powerful resurrection and think about Jesus's perpetual exaltation. Because that's what's going on. When you talk about the cross, again, it's perfect life of Jesus. It's the punishing death he died. It's the powerful resurrection that we celebrate. And it's the perpetual exaltation of he's no longer on the cross. He's in heaven interceding for you and I at this very moment. Well, now that we've taken a little bit of a deeper look at the glory of the cross, let's move on to our second heading this morning. And in verse 33, we're going to see the glory of discipleship. Your next blank there says the use of affectionate terminology. Notice in verse 33 Jesus starts off saying little children. Now little children is just one word in the original and this is the only time in all four gospels that we see Jesus use this particular word and this is not a condescending term. You know, sometimes kids are playing and they're just taunting each other. You're acting like a little kid you're a little child. You know, that's how kids do. I know I hear it sometimes around my neighborhood. Uh, So (laughs) the idea here is when he says little children, there's nothing condescending here. This is a precious term, right? This is not Jesus making fun of the disciples pointing out their immaturity. No, Jesus is using this word as a familiar loving address to his disciples. He is referring to his disciples here as his spiritual children. He loves the disciples, he cares for them deeply, and he wants to see them grow in their faith and to be comforted by his love, and there is a good vibe going on here with this use of this word, little children. This term is used by the Apostle John in the epistle of 1 John seven times, each time it's an endearing term. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm writing to you, little children, Because your sins are forgiven, and now, little children, abide in him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Little children, let us love in word and in deed. Little children, uh, you have overcome the world. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Every time it's used, it's just an encouraging term. Jesus is affectionately addressing his disciples, and he's saying, I will only be with you a little longer. Tomorrow, Jesus dies. Remember, this is Thursday night, Passover, Last Supper. Friday, he dies on the cross. Saturday, there's silence. Sunday's the resurrection. Then Jesus is on earth for 40 more days before his ascension, and then that's it. And so Jesus wants to make the most of his short time that he has left. And I would say that part of discipleship is spending time expressing your love and being purposeful in your time together. And so Jesus on this last night before he dies uses John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, five chapters just to say, I'm gonna pour my heart out to you and I'm gonna call you little children because I wanna gather you in and I wanna protect you under the shadow of my wings and I wanna warn you about what's to come because I love you. And so he calls them little children as a technical, logical term of kindness and care and love. And we ought to learn from that. We got to speak to one another with kindness. We got to speak to one another with grace. We got to speak to one another about things that are important, like loving Christ and following in his footsteps. That's what discipleship is all about. And I would say to you this morning, parents, be affectionate with your children and be purposeful. Tell them that you love them. Sometimes I'll have one of my kids in the car if I'm trying to spend special time with them, and I'll say, hey, has dad ever told you how much I love you? And sometimes my kids will be like, all the time. And I'm like, well, then good. You got it. Don't ever forget, daddy loves you, and I'm committed to you, and I don't care what you do in this life or how many times you fall. Daddy loves you. That's discipleship. Just saying, I love you. I want to have affection with you. I want to be there for you, and I also want to be purposeful and intentional in the conversations that we have together. I mean, just yesterday, we're sitting on the couch, and I was exhausted. I went on a campout with one of my other kids, and and we didn't sleep, you know, maybe as well as you normally do, and I get home, and I'm on the couch, and then this other kid, I got different kids, you know, this other kid comes up to me and says, Dad, can I ask you some questions about the Bible? Now, how cool is that? But part of me in my flash is like, you know, I'm pretty tired. I'm going to preach a sermon tomorrow. Why don't you just listen to that? <laughs> I didn't do that. I'm just telling you that's what I first thought. Because, because sometimes, sometimes, you know, when a kid wants to talk to you th- about the Bible, that's precious and that's something we long for. But sometimes that too can be tiring because there was lots of questions and lots of, you know, lots of trying to understand. And I just thought, oh my word, this is a perfect opportunity for discipleship. Like, what am I doing? Of course, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to dig deep. I'm never going to complain, God help me, about my kids asking hard questions about the Bible, even if it's late at night. You know how it is. You're putting your kids to bed, and it's like, you know, already later than it ought to be. Dad, why aren't there four people in the Trinity? You know, it's like, (laughs) like, what? (laughs) You know? (laughs) I mean kids like they asked like way harder than seminary way harder than my ordination as the kids that ask questions what I'm saying is like what a beautiful opportunity for discipleship and that's what Jesus is doing here and he uses affection because that's where it starts not only do we show affection discipleship's also about your next blank the preparation for difficult truths I mean look what Jesus says to him a little while I am with you you will seek me and just as i said to the jews so now i also say to you where i am going you cannot come now jesus told his disciples that they would seek him and wouldn't be able to find him and that where he was going they cannot come remember jesus said a similar thing to the pharisees in john 7:34 you will seek me and you will not find me where i am you cannot come but there's a difference and how Jesus says this to the unbelieving Pharisees and how he says it to his precious disciples. And the difference is this. For the disciples, this is just temporary. But for the Pharisees, it was a permanent statement. When Jesus told the unbelieving Pharisees that, he meant that they were not going to go to heaven because of their own self-righteousness. So he's like, hey, I'm gonna be in heaven for all eternity and you're not coming. But when he says that to the disciples, it's a temporary thing. It's a similar statement, but it's temporary. What he's saying to the disciples is, you just can't follow me right now. Later, you will be able to follow me, but right now, your assignment is to stay on earth and to be salt and light on this world until you die. Nevertheless, it would have been difficult for the disciples to hear what Jesus is saying to them. Look, you're not gonna be able to be with me right now. The disciples loved Jesus dearly. They had been following him dependently for these last three years. To learn of his departure would have been a very difficult thing to swallow, knowing that he would soon die would have been a painful and frightening truth to accept. But sometimes that's what discipleship is. Sometimes discipleship is saying hard things that aren't necessarily pleasant to listen to, but it's still true. And discipleship is training people for the future, and training takes time, and training takes hard work, and training requires correction, and training leads to constructive criticism, and training is most effective when the one involved in your training speaks the truth in love to you to help you grow and change to be more like Jesus. And you ever had to have that hard talk with someone? Hey, if you continue down this path, this is where you're going to end up. Or the way you've been acting lately and speaking lately and your attitude lately doesn't show the love of Christ. It's just not always easy to say the hard things, but that's part of what discipleship is. I love you so much. I'm not going to say something that's true, but it may be difficult. And so discipleship is affectionate. Discipleship is saying the hard things. Third, the necessity of full trust. Discipleship really requires this element of trust. I mean, now, ultimately, we trust Christ. We trust his word. We trust the principles clearly outlined in scripture. For the disciples in John 13, they need to truly trust that Jesus knows what he's doing and he knows what is best. It's like what Jesus says to his disciples in John 16:7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So in other words, it's hard to hear Jesus saying, I gotta go, but if we trust him, we know he's doing the best thing, and the best thing in this context is like, I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving, but I'm not really leaving forever because the Spirit's coming. And so the disciples must trust that what Jesus is doing is the right thing. Jesus is doing the most loving thing. Jesus is doing what would bring the Father the most glory. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And discipleship is an awesome thing because while we're trying to follow Christ, we can follow other men and women who give at least a little bit of an example of what that needs to be like, Though we're always ultimately following Christ. Jesus tells us that we are to make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey all that he has commanded. And so may God help us to see intentional discipleship is what Jesus has called us to in a loving, purposeful way to interact with each other. The glory of the cross, the glory of discipleship. Let's spend the rest of our time on the glory of love. First question is this, how is this commandment new? Verse 34, a new commandment, I give to you that you love one another. Well, out of all of biblical history and out of all of the Old Testament and out of Jesus' three-year New Testament ministry, is this really the first time that people have ever been told that they need to love one another? The answer is no. Chronologically speaking, this is not the first time this has been shared in the Bible. Of course they've been told to love before. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, we read that you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love one another. It says you shall love your neighbor there as yourself. In the giving of the Ten Commandments, it is understood that it is because we love God that we don't have any other gods before him. In the restating of the Ten Commandments, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses writes in the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so when Jesus was asked earlier, which is the greatest commandment in the law, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So basically, Jesus was taking Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those commandments of love, and putting them together with all of the law, and saying, look, you've got to love God and love others. So the question, again, that we're asking is, well, how is it that Jesus says in this moment that this is a new commandment that I give to you if it's already been said so many times? Well, I would say this. The difference is that it is impossible to love like Jesus commanded without the transforming power of the new covenant. The new covenant is new because it is when God writes his law upon your heart. The new covenant is new because we have a savior who kept the old covenant perfectly. And once the old covenant was kept perfectly by Christ, our substitute, then our sins were paid for by his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And all of this is now taking place at one time where Jesus is saying, So think of it all fresh and anew, because now we're thinking of it in the midst of his sacrifice that he will give to us. Think of it as new as you become new in Christ. In Christ, you are a new creature. In Christ, you have a new heart. In Christ, you have new desires. In Christ, you have a new focus in your worship. In Christ, you have a new reason for living. In Christ, you have a new way of living your life. Jesus changes everything. He changes your heart, he changes your countenance, He changes your relationships, he changes your abilities, he changes your goals, he changes your pursuits, he changes your entire life. So one commentator wrote on this verse, quote, love was now to be explained with new clearness enforced by new motives and obligations illustrated by a new example and obeyed in a new manner. So what's new about it? Well, what's new about it is that we finally have an ultimate example to follow in Jesus. You couldn't follow Adam because he ate the fruit. You couldn't follow Noah because he got drunk. You couldn't follow Abraham because he slept with Hagar. You couldn't follow Moses because he struck the rock twice. You couldn't follow David because he slept with Bathsheba. And the list goes on and on and on. You can't follow ultimately man's example until this man. Jesus Christ. There's something different about Christ. He was meek, yet he was firm. He was sober, yet he was joyful. He was truthful, yet he was loving. He upheld God's law, yet he showed mercy. He confronted the ungodly, yet he ate with sinners. He was humble, and he was holy. He was the lion and the lamb. And for the first time in the existence of the world, we now have an example To follow as Jesus says, you are to love one another just as I loved you. How did Jesus love you? He loved you, according to verse one of this chapter, to the very end. He loved his own sacrificially, he loved his own completely. He loved his own patiently. He loved his own exhaustively. He loved his own with his words and with his deeds and in his heart and with his actions and spiritually and physically. And the only way that you can love like he loved is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's it's part of the new covenant As now you have a new covenant. You have God writing his law on your heart as he transforms you by grace to the cross. And then he gives his spirit to you. Romans 5 5 and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Every born again believer has the capacity with the spirit's help to love one another just as Christ loved us. D.A. Carson, well-known theologian, writes, quote, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, and yet profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. We are to love one another. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, now that we understand a little bit better of why Jesus calls this a new commandment, let's now ask the second question, how are we to love one another? Verse 34 again says, you are to love one another just as I have loved you, so are you to love one another. I know Jesus said, just as I loved you, and so we are to love sacrificially, and we are to love selflessly, and we are to love perfectly, but what does that really look like? We could spend a series on what it means to love one another, but I wanna give you just two marks of a Christian in love as read and recorded in the book, The Mark of the Christian by Francis Schaeffer. At this point, he says, you know, I'm just gonna give you two things here. To talk about practical ways that Christians can show their love for each other. Their first way is that a true Christian will stop what they are doing and they will ask for forgiveness from those whom they have wronged. That's one of the greatest acts of love that you can do as a Christian. You can say, as a Christian, you can say, I'm sorry, I got angry at you and I spoke harshly against you will you please forgive me? A Christian will say, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you the full truth. I lied to you. Will you please forgive me? A Christian will say, I'm sorry, I was being selfish. I was coveting the idol of comfort. Would you please forgive me for not being more helpful in that situation? Oftentimes, what causes the harshest most bitter of arguments between two people is not the content of what is being discussed, but the way that it's being discussed. It's not always the difference between the two opposing sides. It's the way in which those differences are being expressed. Many times those who are on the same side in the body of Christ will fight against each other in a sinful way. Being willing to apologize and ask for forgiveness from those whom we have sinned against is one of the most loving things you could ever do. To not ask for forgiveness of the offended party is to love yourself more than you love them. To not ask for forgiveness is to consider your own interests is more important than others. To not ask for forgiveness is a sin against God, and it shows that you are disregarding his word. The Bible says we're to confess our sins to one another. It's a whole lot of people who seem to be loving each other in external ways. And you start going through their life, relationship by relationship, and then you'll realize, whoop, they cut this person off, they cut this person off, They don't have a relationship with this person. Those things were never reconciled because they don't have Christ. They don't know the gospel. They don't realize that one of the most profound acts of love that you can show is to ask for forgiveness. This is so serious that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that reconciliation with another person whom you've sinned against or offended must be done before you can worship God with a pure heart. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, you're coming to church, you want to offer your sacrifice of praise to the Lord, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. So if you're coming to church and you want to worship God and you realize somehow that somebody has something against you, Jesus says, stop leave your gift right there at the altar forget your praise and worship forget your offering that's not what I want I want you to go and be reconciled to your brother then come and offer your gift whether that be in a marriage or with your parents are with your children, or with others in this church. If we want to love in the way that Christ wants us to, then we need to be asking for forgiveness a whole lot more often. It's only because of the new covenant and the gospel that you can love someone enough to ask them to forgive you. It's only when your hard heart has been made new that you can practice this this asking of forgiveness again and again and again because you're new in Christ. The second practical way that Francis Shaver discussed as a tangible way to practice love is to forgive someone that sins against you, to grant someone forgiveness. So the first is you ask for it. The second is you need to grant it to them when they do ask for it. In light of the fact that God has forgiven you a great sin debt, You can in return forgive others of their sin against you. The Bible teaches that forgiven people forgive. And if you have tasted the forgiveness that God offers you through Christ, it is so sweet and it is so freeing and it is so life changing that it actually becomes a joy for you to forgive others in His name. It goes like this Oh, you sinned against me, you wounded me, that really hurt. You know what? I'm just so thankful I'm forgiven. I've done so much worse against my father in heaven and Jesus died for me and he showed love for me. I forgive you. I grant you forgiveness. And when you forgive someone who has sinned against you, you are loving that person. And if you don't forgive them, then you're holding it against them. And because God loves you, he sent Jesus to die on a cross so that he could forgive you of your sin. And because of the cross, you can love others by forgiving them of their sin. Forgiving someone is loving them. Not forgiving them is not loving them. If you want to love one another, then you have to forgive one another every day. Jesus said in Luke 17, 3 through 4, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Forgiveness is not optional. Forgiving others is what Christians do. Forgiven people forgive. It's Ephesians 4:31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There are a whole lot of ways that Christians can love each other. There is sacrifice, there is service, there is sharing, there is deferring to their desires over your own, there is hospitality, there's encouragement, there is prayer, there's just being there for somebody. But I believe that one of the clearest ways to show someone that you love them is to ask for forgiveness and to grant forgiveness to one another. To forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So how about it, husband? Is there anything that you need to ask forgiveness for from your wife? How about it, wives? Is there anything that you need to grant forgiveness to your husband? Are you holding on to something? And it goes both ways. How about it, children? Have you sinned against a sibling? How about it, teenager? Have you sinned against your parents? How about it, college students, young people, middle-aged people? When you get old, you don't have to worry about it. You finally figured it out. (laughs) Just kidding, right? It's hard for old people too. Like, this is something we can only do in the power of the Spirit, and we all need this challenge this morning because we're all sinners. But if you're in Christ today, you have been forgiven a great sin debt. How can you hold on to something against someone else when God doesn't hold on to your sin against you? The best way that God shows his love for you was by forgiving you. Don't you think that's also the best way you can show love to somebody else? And then we read in verse 35 by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will people know your last blank? How will they know that you're a disciple? Love is the badge of true Christian discipleship. How will the world know that you're a Christian? How will those around you know that there's something different about you? Is it by what you say you believe? Is it by how you vote on election day? Is it what you stand for or what you stand against? Will they know that you're a Christian by how much you give? Will they know that you're a Christian because of what school you send your kids to? Will they know that you're a Christian because of what church you attend? And the answer to all those, Christian, all those questions is no. That's not how they'll know. Those might be good things to consider and that we could talk about those things, but that's not how Jesus says the world knows you're a Christian Jesus said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. They will know that you are Christians by your love. This means that one of your best tools in evangelism is love. This means that one of your best tools in winning the lost is by loving them and allowing them to observe your love for one another in Christ. I'd like to be and a loving community like that. The clearest way for the world to know that you are not a hypocrite is for you to live out what you say you believe, and the way that we're challenged to live out our faith in this verse is by loving one another. Francis Schaeffer said, quote, the church is to be a loving church and a dying culture. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. John touches on this even more in 1 John where he writes, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So one of the ways that you can have assurance of your salvation, one of the ways that you can know whether or not Christ lives in you is by loving the brothers and sisters. And if you are faithfully and consistently loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, there is evidence that you are abiding in Christ. But if you don't love your brothers and your sisters in Christ, then what evidence is there that you're a Christian? In addition to love being about forgiving one another, love is described In a beautiful way, in 1 Corinthians 13, sometimes known as the love chapter, where we read that love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. It never ends. So can I ask you this morning if you are loving in this way? Is it evident to all those around you that you are a disciple of Christ? Are we a church that demonstrates our love for one another? What is Placerita Bible Church known for in our community? Are we known more for our doctrine than we are for our love? Are we known more for being right than being loving? Are we known for preaching the truth, or showing our love for each other? You know what? I want to be known for both. I never wanna water down doctrine. We're not watering down preaching. We're not gonna water down the exclusivity of our faith as given in the Bible. But I also want to be known as a loving community where people would look at PBC and be like, man, that's the church where they love each other. They care for each other. They forgive each other. They reconcile when they go through hard times. They love each other. Truth and love go hand in hand. Good doctrine leads to the graciousness that God gives us to love each other. Good preaching leads to practicing the one another's in love. D.L. Moody said this years ago, quote, show me a church where there is love, and I will show you a church that is a power in the community. And then he shared this story. He says, in Chicago, a few years ago, there was a little boy who attended a Sunday school I know of. When his parents moved to another part of the city, the little fellow still attended the same Sunday school, although it meant a long Tiresome walk each way. A friend asked him why he went so far and told him that there were plenty of other churches just as good nearer his home. They may be as good for others, but not for me, was his reply. Why not? They asked. Because they love a fellow over there, he replied. In other words, he walked past all the the other churches to go back to the church where he started because that's where he was shown love. He wanted to be in a community of love. Do we know how to love? Are we loving? It starts in our relationship with the Lord. It continues in our loving relationships in our homes. It then spreads to how we love one another right here at this church. And as Jesus was the embodiment of God's love, so now each disciple should embody Christ's love. This love is a sign to the world as well as to every believer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for opportunity this morning to be challenged by Christ's words that we wanna glory in the cross and in his resurrection. And we also wanna glory in the discipleship and the affection we see between Christ and his disciples. But we mostly wanna glorify in this lesson of love. Lord, we wanna love one another just as God and Christ has loved us. Would you help us, Lord? to not only uphold your word, but also to uphold putting it into practice in a way that only you can do through your spirit so that the community here in Santa Clarita would know us by our love. We pray this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.